Uh, Nova, what chocolate are you plugging? Oh, am I cho- am I plugging a chocolate? I suppose I could. I mean, that's it's, it's it's an option. I don't know that I have good chocolate opinions other than that one. Oh, actually, I do have a, a chocolate opinion. <laughs> you could plug Hershey's. I would never do that, but thank you. You can also plug a non-chocolate. Oh, chocolate non? That sounds delicious. <laughs> I'm Nova. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lore, is the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Elena, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Hi, I'm your sister. I'm going to plug this chocolate I had recently. It's Dick Taylor's Madagascar Sombriano 72% Dark Craft Chocolate. It's real good. It's kind of fruity. I never had a, a chocolate that tasted like chocolate the fruit before. This one does. Have you have you had, like, chocolate with raisins in it? Yeah, I don't, I don't like chocolate with fruit. But it turns out if the chocolate is itself fruity, then that's good. It has the essence of fruit in it. Yeah, it's just kind of like a tart, sweet aftertaste that makes you think of fruit. Yeah, fruit esters. (laughs) Right, those. Uh, Nova, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Sure. Hi, I'm Nova. I do software engineering, as many people do. Um, And I'm going to plug Chocolove, which is this brand of chocolate that does... Uh, a love poem inside of the chocolate bars. The love poems aren't very good, but the chocolate is. So I recommend their cherries and almonds dark chocolate bar, uh, because I do like fruit inside of chocolate bars. What if you combined fruity chocolate and fruit? I mean, I think in that case, I'd prefer to just eat the fruit. Yeah, fair. I would also prefer to just eat the fruit in that case. However, I have a friend who makes a really mean fruit tart, and she like lines the crust normally with dark chocolate, but this one time she did ruby chocolate, which is like extra fruity chocolate, and that worked great. Yeah, it's really pretty chocolate also. Um, you can get ruby chocolate in coins for melting for that kind of thing, mm-hmm. though they add some wax to it, I think, which is interesting. While you two were talking about that, I was just thinking about how it's funny to interpret mean as average. <laughs> it was an extremely average fruit tart, precisely better than half fruit tarts. And mean in this case, would you say like makes a really mean that is that phrase like a fossil usage of mean? That phrase is the only place where mean means that? I can't think of any other situations where people use mean in that sense anymore. So yeah, it seems likely. Yeah. I would kind of want to look up like when that phrase came into being and like what the common uses of mean were at the time before I like say anything too concrete, yeah, yeah. but it seems likely. Yeah, you can put it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Do some homework. Yeah. Go to Edim online and see if they have anything to say. That's right. This is this is homework for the listeners now. We're not going to put anything <laughs> in the show notes. You can go to edimonline.org and find out for yourself. Research your own topics. Yeah. And tell me because I'm curious. <laughs> uh, are we ready to start on some topics? Absolutely. Yeah. I love topics. A linear topic is things I have learned about myself from being a professional matchmaker. So this is my d- new job recently. I kind of fell into it. It's been very interesting. Is this a self-employed kind of a situation? Yeah, which is wild because I've always had a boss when I've had a job. And now I don't have to prove anything to anyone. I can just do what I want. I feel like you kind of have to prove everything to everyone. <laughs> well. Being self-employed is is unique. It's uh, You have a lot of freedom, but you have like also a lot more pressure to make yourself perform. Yeah. No, I, I kind of constantly like half feel like I am totally behind some imaginary quota that how would I even know what it was? <laughs> and half the time I'm like, 
I don't know. I'm I'm rocking this probably. Who could tell? I can't. <laughs> I mean, are you making a living? I'm so far, yeah. Cool. And I'm even making some matches, so that's cool. That's great. What's your match rate like? Yeah, tell us about this. Um, I am tremendously hot behind on my bookkeeping right now. So like my match rate is not as high as it could be. But I think I've set up like ten dates out of a hundred people or something. Last time I did numbers. So that's twenty percent of people who've been on dates. Yeah. It's not bad. So yeah. tell us about the service. Well, I have a website, propinquity.me. Propinquity is like a, a social science term about like nearness of people and people who have high propinquity tend to end up dating. You should hire somebody to tell you to get a better domain name. So I, I also have a different domain name that's worse because... So the way that I got into this job was I got this encrypted email from Eliezer Yudkowsky being like, would you like to work on a secret project? <laughs> and I was like, sure, why not? And the secret project is being a matchmaker. And so he built me a website that was my first website. But it's not a secret anymore? No, I mean, like, it stopped being a secret once I, like, launched it. Okay, good. Because I can totally, rem well, not me, but the, the person who edits the show can now <laughs> remove this section entirely if... No, no. The thing is now public and like publicizing it is probably good for my business because then more people will call me to be match made, right? Yeah. And your um funnel or whatever you call it, when people come in, do you have are you asking people how they found out about you? You know, I haven't been because so far everybody is either Scott Alexander posted to Astral Codex ten or Eliezer posted to Facebook. Right. Yeah, you're gonna run out of those. Yeah, eventually I'll have to come up with a different way of marketing myself. Well, maybe word of mouth will just keep it going. That'd be neat. But yeah, so like the way it works is I, I do like a, a 45 minute call with people where I just kind of like talk about like dating profile type questions. I have like a whole list that I run through. Like, what are you like in a relationship? What sort of relationship are you looking for? What is your relationship history? What sort of relationship skills do you have? All this stuff. And it's been really interesting talking to people and like getting a sense of what's normal. Because, like, nobody knows what normal is. Like, if you talk to people about, like, you know, how tidy are you, everybody's like, oh, you know, I'm a little messy. Right. It's like the Scoville scale of tidiness. Right. Or, like, if you're like, I don't know, like, do you have a high sex drive? They're like, you know, I'm probably, like, average. Right. Nobody has any sense of this sort of thing. Except for you now. Right. Like, I've, I've been starting to get numbers on this sort of thing. So now I know that, like, most people that I speak to don't leave their dishes sitting around for more than like a day. Like they'll wash them the same day. Often they will wash them like immediately after use. That's wild. Which I know makes me feel like a slob. And then there's, I guess other things that I've learned about myself that like are, are not related to the like data aggregation that I'm doing. For example, when I, I talk to people, like every single person that I talk to, I'm just like, whoa, you are a great catch. You're like immensely dateable. I can totally see somebody getting a crush on you. Like this is why, why are you not dating people already? Wow. Okay. And like after I had done this like 50 times or whatever, I was like, hang on, this is about me. <laughs> I just like people. Like this is not like I somehow miraculously am only exclusively talking to the like most desirable 5% of humanity. Right. I just, you know, I meet somebody and I'm like, you're a cool person. Yeah. But also, like, these are all friends of Eliezer or Scott. I mean, friends. 
readers. Readers, right. So yeah. sure, like we're, we're likely to have stuff in common, I guess. Well, it's like how everybody who comes on this show has ADHD. Right. Which so do a lot of my clients. <laughs> right. <laughs> and how somebody really tell if they have ADHD? This has been something that's been very confusing to me for a long time. I went to a psychiatrist and had to do a very tedious test about it. I should try doing that instead of just assuming. That sounds like an incredibly exciting thing. <laughs> I mean, they they put me in front of this machine and they like strapped sensors all over my body. And they were like, now sit still. And when you see a star, if the star has more than four points, click this button. And if it has less than four, click that button. I don't remember exactly, but it had to do with the number of points that stars have. And so then I would just stare at the screen and stars would pop into existence in various places on the screen. And I had to like react as quickly as I could while still getting it right. And also sitting still for like a while. Honestly, that sounds fantastic. I'd love to have somebody take an objective test and tell me something about myself that I didn't already know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like it it was interesting to see my results. I am like exactly average in terms of um, inattentiveness. I think it was I had zero errors of omission, but I had like a bunch of errors of commission. And I also stayed super still. I was like way stiller than even people who are not ADD. This is because I was focusing all of my attention on sitting still because they told me to sit still. (laughs) But yeah, so now I have a piece of paper that says, you know, Elena is officially ADD and I can show it to people and they'll be like, oh, wow, you are. You can get it laminated and keep it in your wallet. I took a photo of it and keep it in my Google Photos because that's the only place I can find any information. I do that with all of my important documents. Yeah, that's what I do with my driver's license in case a cop pulls me over. Yeah, see. Does that work? I, I got into an accident once and had to like pull up my, my license and insurance on my phone. Did that actually work? Because I was joking. No, it, 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 it worked. Like I, I shared my information with the person and then I think even subsequently with the cops that showed up. Oh, yeah. I mean, if it's a private citizen, what do they know? But if it, if it worked on a cop, then I'm <laughs> impressed. I, I think it worked on a cop. I mean, like they let me go, right? Because they didn't execute you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's all you can really ask for with cops. Right. One thing I've been meaning to bring up is like, do you have photos of these people? Um, I do video calls. Video calls. I do video calls on Signal. Okay. It's like some of them additionally send me photos, but right. I just have like my I saw them. And are you taking their physical appearance into account when mat into account when matchmaking? Uh to some degree. Like most people are like, I don't care that much about appearances, or like conventionally attractive is fine. And basically, nobody that I speak to has been like horrendously ugly. Right. Um, and most of them are like you know decent looking. Right. So I haven't had anything that I've like been filtering out in terms of like, you're not pretty enough. Like I have had people, for example, say like, I want somebody, you know, who's at least this tall or, you know, no taller than this. And I have done some filtering based on that sort of stuff. Right. The reason I bring it up, I had a lot of trouble dating because I didn't realize for a long time how important it was to find somebody about as attractive as you. Mm. Like it's it's actually super important because everybody wants to date somebody hot. Yeah. And if one per, if there's a disparity there, there's a big power differential as a result of that. Yeah. Huh. But a lot of people don't really know how hot they are, especially straight guys. Right. And like the vast majority of my clients are straight guys who just have no clue. Right. But you can look at them. Yeah, I can look at them. Right. And I I mean I I have my personal evaluation of how hot they are. I might have idiosyncrasies and what I think is hot. Like, I'm probably giving extra points to anybody who has, like, long hair and a beard. But, you know, I do what I can. Yeah, that's fair. 
Yeah, ideally there would be like a committee. Right? A, a panel of people to rate it and we would do like inter-rater agreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about Photofeeler? What's that? So there's a site that does approximately this, uh, where you upload photos of yourself huh. and other people rate them, basically. And you have to rate some of other people's or you pay money, I think. is There's probably a way to skip the queue that way. I okay. did this once because I thought it was hysterical because... <laughs> I, I think it's so subjective and it's it's difficult to objectively evaluate this thing, but it certainly is something that a lot of people put a lot of stock in. So um, if you have time oh, to like man. evaluate maybe six or seven people's photos. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to give this a shot. Maybe I can recommend it to clients and then they can tell me their number. <laughs> I wonder whether there's an API so you can make sure that they're not lying to you about that number. <laughs> Everybody's just inflating their numbers at me. Yeah, I'm a 10. I thought people would uh, deflate it. So much of this whole process is just has to be just based on being super honest about everything that like lying is just self-defeating. Yeah. Yeah. It super is. And it's like really interesting, like what sorts of things people are like willing to tell me or not. Like I do my best to like keep everything very confidential and like reassure people that like I am accepting and non-judgmental and have heard all sorts of weird stuff. But you know, some people are still like very like cagey about like what their job is or I don't know, like what precisely they're into in the bedroom. What their job is. That's interesting. Like they must, yeah. you think they work at Facebook? Who knows? <laughs> that's what you say is like, okay, I'll just write down that you work at Facebook and then they'll tell you what their job <laughs> is. And if they hang up on you, then, then, you know, they work at Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes people, they'll sit there looking like beat red for like a minute or two and then they'll get out with it. Sometimes they'll be like, I don't, I, can I, write that to you later and I'll be like sure you can can type it it's fine but also like I've had some people who just are clearly either like omitting anything bad about themselves or like so down on themselves that they like can't think of anything good to say about themselves and I'm like I you are clearly a worthwhile person I would love to know what your interests are and they don't know what their interests are (laughs) that's I'm always fascinated by people who have done like so little introspection that they don't even know what they like. Yeah, this has been also like a fascinating range. Like people vary so much on this. Like I have people who come in prepared with like a fucking PowerPoint. They have <laughs> preempted every single question I might possibly ask them. And they can just go and be like, this is, you know, how I am. This is all the stuff. And I have some people where like I ask them a question and they're like, hmm, give me a minute to think about that. And then they'll sit and they'll think for a minute. And then they'll give me a very thoughtful and detailed answer. Yeah. And I have some people where I ask them and they're like, uh, that's a good question. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. Can you give me, what would, what would an example answer to that be? Right. I am going to get a good grade at dating quiz. Something that is normal and possible to achieve. <laughs> yes. And yeah, some people are just, I ask them questions and they're just like, I am a person. I like stuff. And I'm like. Please give me any distinguishing information, but like no matter how I ask the questions, they're just I like cats and girls. <laughs> it's I I don't know what to do with these people. I'm like I, I would love to send you on a date, but I don't know how to convince anyone to go on a date with this person is a human. They are a human person. This person you can project your ideal person onto and you can reshape them to your will. I feel like I wouldn't be doing my I don't know, duty as a matchmaker. No, that might be evil. I'm not sure. There's a reason why I'm not doing this job. (laughs) Yeah, like, would it be, would you be doing your job if you sent, like, two of these same people at each other and they would, like, 
the, the relationship wouldn't be good, but they would both learn a lot. I'm, I've been really debating this. Like, okay, if these people just need more dating experience because they honestly just don't know because they've never done it, like, maybe they could just get dating experience with each other. But I don't, like, if I don't expect that, you know, this is going to be a great relationship, but it might be, you know, a relationship, is that worth it? Maybe I should be asking my clients this. Yeah, that could be something you could ask. You could send a survey or, or you could just call up the people you haven't figured out what to do with. Hey, how good of a relationship are you looking for, really? <laughs> I'm feeling lucky. <laughs> I mean, I have had people say, like, I, I do not have high standards. I just want to go on lots of dates and figure out what the heck is dating is like. Please just, you know, match me with people. And that I feel like, all right, sure. I'll send, I'll send you on dates. So I can just do, you know, dates. But if somebody wants to find the one, then I'm like, I don't know if I can do that with what you've given me. Yeah. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Uh, Nova, your topic is The Mother of All Demos. Sure. Yeah. So The Mother of All Demos is a demo by Doug Engelbart in December something, uh, December 9th, I think, 1968, that was a system called the online system. And it demonstrated in 90 minutes pretty much everything that we have in modern computing. There were things like, you know, graphics and hypertext and using a mouse and you know, video conferencing, a real-time editor. Remember, this is 1968. Most people are using, you know, terminals that aren't even glass terminals oh, wow. at the time. Um, you know, version control, um, dynamic linking and scripting languages that aren't compiled. <laughs> it was incredibly influential in it. And it was one of the things that was a turning point in computing history in a lot of ways, I think. So did this guy just like come from the future? Uh, he came from Xerox Park, which is quite similar <laughs> in a lot of ways. It was, I think it was the, the uh, Stanford Research Institute that was doing this. And okay. basically, there's this guy, Vannevar Bush, who came up with the concept of a Memex machine, which you might know from the history of hypertext. The SRI wanted to do basically that. And it was the concept of this deck uh, or this desk that you could have cards in and you could link from these uh, microfiche cards. Well, one to the other. Um, there's a program called HyperCard that was on early Macintoshes that was quite similar to this. If you're interested in HyperCard, I think I had a class on HyperCard in like elementary school or I something. I believe it. Oh, wow. It was incredibly influential. And if you go to the Internet Archive, you can actually check out some live HyperCard decks. They're very cool. Wow. But Engelbart was highly influenced by this Memex design, and they took that and they they fucking ran with it. Honestly, uh, it was. <laughs> One of the most whiz-bang things I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a lot of tech talks, um, and there's nothing like this. And granted, there was nothing like this before that, but it feels the iPhone demo is a very exciting one. This was that, okay. but like maybe two orders of magnitude more uh, exciting, I think. Wow. Yeah, I think it's interesting and maybe informative to think about how for many decades, computer computing advancements, like advancements in UI and things like that came from academia, came from people who were like, their intention was to improve the situation for the computing community. Uh -huh. And you get things like Tim Berners-Lee inventing, inventing HTML, inventing the web browser and the web server. Very shortly after he did that, you are seeing advancements in tech coming from corporations trying to make money. Right. And and not just that, but like corporations trying to like effectively do a hard takeoff, trying to like uh get to IPO as quickly as possible so that 
the founders can can make a big exit. It's been very frustrating to like observe everything I liked about computers like slowly ebbing away. Like the most common computers nowadays aren't even really programmable. The people who are learning to use those, like growing up using phones and tablets, are mm-hmm. not really getting the they're and uh, so I, I'm actually kind of reluctant to call that a loss because I think there's a lot to be said for the idea of like these are the computers that everybody can use and everybody can take advantage of and everybody can get value out of, whereas computers that you have to program or even computers complicated enough that you can program are maybe arguably um, more limited in scope, like more limited in audience rather. Hmm. I think they kind of are necessarily going to be limited to the people who are interested in figuring out how to program. and Who want to put in the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting frame because I think in a lot of ways, it's very possible to create programs that uh, lend themselves both to being used by non-technical and technical users. Um, I think that things like mm. MySpace and LiveJournal and DreamWith were good examples of places where people oftentimes may not be all that technical, but learned some skills um, to be able to do extra things with the platform that it didn't initially give you the facilities to do. That's interesting. What you're pointing to in a lot of ways is like a commodification of experience in some ways where um, it's mm-hmm. easier to commodify something when you've got a standardized packaging. And when you let somebody execute arbitrary JavaScript on their page or arbitrary CSS, it's definitely a loss to the service provider in terms of control there and being able to commodify that experience. So there's a reason why Facebook looks very different and and very samey in a way that um, something like MySpace very much did not. Oh, that would be fascinating. Like the idea that you could, in your status update, you could also include JavaScript. Yeah, I mean, usually it would be like CSS. Your status but... emits butterflies, for example. Well, I mean, <laughs> we've seen some interesting frame breaks like this, right? So for a while there, Twitter wasn't sanitizing their SVGs properly. And you could upload an SVG for your <laughs> avatar. So you could actually embed JavaScript inside of the SVG, inside of your avatar. And I saw somebody <gasps> play, I think it was Doom. I'm pretty sure it was Doom. It's always Doom uh, <laughs> inside of their avatar. When was this? Incredible. Uh, it's got to be three or four years ago at this point. Wow, that that recently. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, and, I, and it's interesting because a lot of these are mistakes. It's somebody was supposed to yeah. sanitize yeah. things, but people find a way and... I think that's a lot of that hacker ethos that that we kind of wish there was more yeah. of in, in some ways. Yeah. I think that it like, would definitely be possible if this were like an aim that people were motivated to achieve to like make like a programmable computer that is like more accessible to more of like the general population, right? You know what does this well is the, uh, the TI series calculators <laughs> because oh, wow. there's something yeah. that... Um, at least in the US, we have standardized tests, right? We've got the SAT and things like that, where you can't use a phone as a calculator because they don't want you using the internet. And TI has found a niche in selling an $84 calculator that has the capacity to do lots of math and is a very simple CPU. And I mean, I know a lot of my computing came out of doing interesting things with the 84 plus and the basic environment there was slow. And so those limitations kind of forced me to learn some assembly and uh, figure out things like how to prevent, uh, you know, somebody resetting your calculator from doing that. So you learn about um, storing stuff in flash memory and, and things like that. So oh, that's, oh, I'm, I'm jealous now because I had a TI-85 and that at the time there was no facility for programming that thing in assembly. And even if you could, 
uh, there was no storage. There was just RAM. So if you your program crashed, then you lost everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. Not, not, not your TI basic program. Your TI basic program could crash all you want, but an assembly language program, I mean. Was this a TI-83? You know, 85. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm not that familiar. There might be a new make of TI-85, honestly, like now. I'm sure the model numbers are very confusing. Funny to me that they keep the numbers the same, but they actually change them. Yeah. It's it's still relatively better than the 83, the new 83. I guess. And it's easier to get through some standardization processes. Yeah, I know a lot of people who got their, their start as programmers from programming their calculators. Like Alex did Hunt the Wumpus when we were in like middle school on his calculator. <laughs> that's great. I spent a lot of time working on the Game Boy emulator on the 84 Plus. Nice. I think that's probably the only device that I've ever actually played a Pokemon game on. <laughs> Red and blue, because those are the ones that will fit into the TID4 Plus's archive memory. Incredible. I found out recently that they have music. Did you know that? It was very exciting. <laughs> like in Pokemon or on the TI-83? <laughs> well, no, you can do music on the TI-83. It's got a 2.5 millimeter analog output, um, which is intended for link cables with the TI-83. Right. Yeah. And if you use interrupts, you can make chiptune. I know people who made tracker music. There's a site called Omnimega, which I used to frequent. And the, the name of it is from a guy named DJ Omnimega. But yeah, mother of all demos. It's an interesting look into what might have been in some ways. I think the environment that they had there mm. encompasses just about everything that we want to do today, other than maybe some stuff with spreadsheets. Well, we, we're mostly doing it at this point. Like most of the stuff, if not all of it, is now incorporated into modern computing. That's true. I think that in some ways it's rarefied. I don't know. I think that there are, there are elements of it uh, where it's not cohesive in modern computing in in the way that yeah. it was in something like the NLS. Right, right. When everything's produced by the same team with the same vision. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting because like uh, Apple definitely tried to pursue that vision in a lot of ways in, because obviously they came out of Park in, in, in some ways. But that vision seems to have gone by the wayside with the advent of, well, everything's on the web um, and there's no standardized UI framework. So I've used... Mac and PC. And I will say that they both have their pain points and like moving from one to the other is going to be a learning curve no matter what. But the thing that Mac was always better at was that there was only one printer and it was the one made by Apple. And it always worked because there was only one printer. They only had to make drivers work with one thing. And that's why you would see things like to print, you have like two sentences of instructions on, on Mac, and then that's followed by like two pages for Windows. Uh-huh. But I was always disappointed that they weren't able to make it. The, the UI experience, like the, the user experience wasn't actually more cohesive, given that superpower of like them- Being vertically integrated. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It it really is a shame in some ways. And I feel like there's everything's very complicated, but it feels like there's an opportunity for disruption here. Um, pardon my corporate speak uh, for <laughs> some kind of something that's not attempting to be fully compatible with every other program under the sun, but is, you know, taking a little yeah. bit of that Apple philosophy and a little bit of that Unix philosophy and putting that together into something that is a a personal computing environment that reaches that vision. PCs reach out to me, I guess. Yeah, I've seen a few attempts at that sort of thing, and they all look very pristine. They all look very like, this would be a lot of fun to play with. And But no one's ever actually touched it. Uh-huh. It's like a very clean kitchen that you see in someone's house, and you know that they never use that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. It, or it would be like, um, 
Temple OS, where like mm. this is one person's passion project, and everybody else who everybody else who uses it is like this is amazing, and then they put it away and go back to their real work. Mm. I don't know much about Temple OS. Which one is that? Uh, Temple OS is the um, it's the brainchild of a madman. Yeah, we we will have yeah, a topic about this on Topic Lord, so I don't want to talk too much about it. But yeah, it sounds vaguely familiar. But, but- yeah, it was the the guy who um, didn't trust DOS to talk to God, so he wrote his own OS to talk to God through. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember seeing this website, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think he died recently. Yeah. He did some interesting work. It's 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 a shame, but also, like, it's also kind of a kindness. He didn't seem to have a very good life. Mm. I hate to jump back to a previous topic, but did you know that font cartridges used to have more powerful CPUs than printers sometimes, and so you might want to process PostScript on them? This was the thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> because font rendering is extremely difficult. Could they run Doom? Yeah, you can run Doom on a font cartridge. Foon has a thread about this. Oh, good. <laughs> of course. Your input is the um, the document you're trying to print. Uh, yes, basically. <laughs> In the same way as something like an N64 might oftentimes have an additional uh, processor inside of the cartridge. The printers uh. did a very similar thing where you've got an edge connector that goes directly to the other CPU and has access to the main memory. Uh-huh. So you can do arbitrary computing on it. I like that a lot. A piece of history that it's difficult to um, interface with. I think that's beautiful. Uh, so my topic is the wine dark sea, yeah. which is uh, what Homer described of the sea as being wine dark, mm-hmm. which let me actually pull up this phrase. There's a, This phrase is on Wikipedia. That's how much people care about it. Yeah, no, this phrase comes up a lot. The literal translation is the wine faced sea. Faced. I feel like that's pretty different. Or the wine eyed sea. Yeah. But the the question is, is Homer saying that the sea is the color of wine? Uh, and if so, what does this say about how humans have historically perceived color? Or what, did, what does this say about uh, the color of wine in ancient Greece? Right. Maybe they just had, you know, particularly light wine. The Mediterranean Sea, like what color is that compared to other seas? I mean, Homer, I think used this in uh, in connection with stormy seas specifically. So a stormy sea is often going to be okay. quite dark because uh, most of your watercolor is, you know, reflected from the sky. So a wine dark sea is is a salient thing in some ways. Okay. Um, with the understanding that, like, Greek-red-blue distinctions are odd. I don't recall, but mm-hmm. I, I managed to get through an entire ancient studies uh, program without doing any Greek. I only did Latin. But my understanding is... Um, wow, impressive. <laughs> thanks. My understanding is that they didn't have a huge distinction between red and blue, if that's... That's a, a, like a really surprising distinction to not make. <laughs> uh, well, I think that there there are color words, but I don't think that they were poetic color words. So I want to read this paragraph. One of the first to observe that Homer's description of colors were, by modern standards, far from accurate was British statesman William Gladstone. In his book, Studies on Homer and the Homeric Age... Gladstone analyzed all aspects of Homer's mythical world to discover an absence of blue from the poet's descriptions of the Greek natural scenery. The world, Kianos, which in the later stages of Greek meant blue, does make a limited appearance, but for Homer it almost certainly meant dark, as it was used to describe the eyebrows of Zeus. (laughs) Gladstone believed that in a certain way, the Greeks of Homer's time were colorblind, or rather the colors we recognize today are the results of a progressive education of the eye that slowly, slowly took place in the last millennium. His theories were not well received, and Time Magazine wrote a harsh critique of Gladstone. <laughs> I, 
like, so like for one thing, did he consider that maybe just Homer was colorblind and not all Greeks? <laughs> I mean, Homer was sort of an amalgamation, if if we understand correctly. It's tough to say that about one person. I think it's it's a, like a like an oral tradition, right? Mm-hmm. So it's going to have evolved over many people. The section Modern Theories says in the 1980s, a theory gained prominence that after Greeks mixed their wine with hard alkaline water, typical for the Peloponnesus, if I'm pronouncing that right. It became darker and more of a bluish color. Approximately at the same time, P.G. Maxwell Stewart argued that wine-eyed may simply denote drunk and unpeaceful. Yeah, that seems pretty plausible. I mean, I think the other thing is that lots of Greco-Roman poetic depictions focus on light and shadow more than they do color. If you look at uh, Homeric studies, I think the main correct colors are things that are talking about like saffron and other other colors that are very light colors, talking about the sunrise and things like that, more than skies and, and people and things like that. Definitely, like, the the first distinction that, like, like languages make, like, if they're going to make any sort of color distinction, the first one they make is, like, between, like, light, warm colors and dark, cool colors. So you would expect, like, if a language is going to have any words for colors, it'll have something that means, like, white and, like, maybe, like, yellow and red and something that means black and like maybe blue right there's also the idea that according to this many of the world's most ancient languages lack a word for blue yeah blue is like surprisingly rare there just yeah. aren't that many blue things other than the sky in, in nature <laughs> i guess there's, i guess there's <laughs> flowers there's there's water water even arguable water's like, usually not blue water, water is barely blue I think that, like, people's perception of water is, like, a pretty interesting thing in and of itself, because, like, you encounter water in a lot of different contexts, and then it looks pretty different in all those different contexts, and it, only in some of them is, does water appear to have any sort of color at all. Yeah. I'm looking at a an article on Perseus here, and they're talking about uh, a translation of Homer, and, they're, and the sea is usually something like Glaucos or Melas shining or gleaming or and then melas is like in melancholy it's dark or dark in hue but it could also mean dark in mood so if you translate it as dark it loses some of the it loses something in translation as many languages do yeah but yeah shining or dark in sea is is a i think a fairly coherent concept especially in something that says poetic yeah. and you're trying to refer to the mood of the sea as reflective of the mood of the actors in the play mm. and that's like a matter of like value, not hue, right? Mm-hmm. So there's just like different ways of conceptualizing color. Yeah, we could go on about CMYK color spaces for a while, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like wondering now, like cross linguistically, how common it is for languages to distinguish lightness and darkness of like specific colors. Because like I know, like Russian, for example, has a word for like light blue, like azure. I think it's what they usually translate it as, and dark blue. Oh, interesting. Hebrew does this also. I don't know if and what other languages do this, or if they do it for anything other than blue. Well, um, yeah, that's a English great has the, the distinction between orange and brown, which are the same frequency. English has like a lot of color words. That's English true. English is like pretty surprising in its amount of color words. A lot of languages, like once they get past like the basic rainbow set of colors, uh, their color words start being like, named after things so like it's tea colored or mud colored or whatever in hindi there's not a whole lot i know that hindi's got like a lot of color words and that are about hue and then it's like you know 
nila ranga or or hara ranga for like you know talking about dark or light um there's yeah. no like specific uh word that encapsulates that light blue or I, I guess it's like dark blue and then light green right and like english has like you know red and pink so we, it, english definitely encodes some amount of like lightness versus darkness within a specific color but i don't know how common that is cross linguistically are we ready for another topic sure so for this topic, we're going to be watching uh, the music video by Twerp uh, called Starlight Brigade featuring Dan Avedon. Are you ready? Yeah. Three, two, one, play. Twerp featuring Dan Avedon. At first I thought it was Terp, and then I realized there were <laughs> two U's or a double <laughs> That's U. That's like a double U. Yeah. Got some lovely stars here. They're not twinkling, which is a shame. No. Stationary stars. Knights of the Light Table. I guess that's the animators? Possibly. They do have that stylus theme going. Or perhaps that's the name of the movie that this is supposed to be. I think that this is supposed to be Starlight Brigade. Oh, now they're twinkling. And now somebody's grabbing them. Yeah, gotta grab those stars. Humanity's inherent desire to reach out towards the stars. Represented in film. Uh-huh. Oh, it got away. It's like when you try to swat a fly. <laughs> uh, gotta get one of those electric zappers. Yeah. I, I read uh, recently that the way you uh, you should approach uh, killing a fly is you spray it with water. Oh, huh? Like weigh it down? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like it, it won't see the water. The idea is that you won't it won't see the water coming, and then um, after it is unable to fly because it's wet, then you can kill it. Oh, okay. Well, it looks like they did that to the stars. They did just yeah. take all the stars. This place looks pretty grim now. Our, our protagonist here has like a star on their chest, though. The source of all their power. The father there reminded me of Nausicaa's uh, dad from Nausicaa in the Valley. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like um, my anime uh, literacy is the lowest in the room, so feel free <laughs> to call out more uh, more references. I'm sure, this is, I'm sure this is full of very specific illusions. Oh, man, I bet it is, but I don't actually, like, consume a lot of anime from the era that, like, this is almost certainly going to have references from. I was going to say if it has any references to, and then I couldn't remember any of the names of the of the shows you watched as a kid. <laughs> I remember all the theme songs. Marmalade Boy. Ah, the stars are back, huh? Oh, there's some, there's some stars in the water here? Let our protagonist in. Stop having it be closed. <laughs> what was oh. the name of the show where one of the characters learned Japanese by watching samurai movies? What? You don't remember this? I have no idea. Okay. Apparently, I, I remember that detail better than you do. <laughs> oh, this has got Big Hero 6 energy. I like how their ship is made out of uh, ferrofluid. Yeah. Or, the, or it's the goo from uh, Prometheus. <laughs> Concerning. Hmm, I didn't consider when, when I was skimming through this that because they were aping a style that has a bunch of... Uh, that, that tries to do a lot of cost-saving measures... That they would have a lot uh -huh. of shots that are just like, here's a person standing very still. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I guess, like mimicking back when every frame cost way too many dollars. Yeah. The trick then, as in now, is to simply not pay the animators very well. Right, yes. Ooh, this is this looks very circular Gallifreyan-inspired. I like this. This is a, a genre that can only exist when there's a disparity in the global economy. <laughs> That's a nice warp effect. Yeah, going real fast, having a good time. Yeah, that was a that was a face journey. Yeah, I got some expressions there. Yeah, yeah. At first, she was scared of the warp effect, and then she was enjoying it, and then she was angry at it. 
All right. Well, we found the space spaceship graveyard. That's some kind of gender. I don't know what kind of gender that is, but it's interesting. Oh yeah, I have I have no guess as to the protagonist gender here. Honestly, I'm loving it. Honestly, I love a spaceship graveyard. Ah, uh, good, good fantasy sci-fi triangles. <laughs> <laughs> There's a guy with a bug with bug sunglasses. Hail and well met, stranger. <laughs> yeah. Now we've got a bunch of friends. Does that spaceship have truck nuts? <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to look again. Ah, oh, they have furries in this universe. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Space robot, space ninja. Yep. Another one of those shots where nothing happens. <laughs> okay, so they were going to like the mothership where this person has their battle map. Right. And there's a uh, a guy with a, a a weird helmet who is gesturing wildly. I'm loving the re- the reel to reel tape that they had below the surface. Oh, I missed yeah, it. That's good. Yeah. Here's a here's a good uh, ensemble shot of like all the different uh, animated character archetypes. Yeah, and the, in the background they had all the the triangle and star symbol on all the monitors. Mm-hmm. Drive home the point that this is the symbol of the thing. Uh oh! Call to action. Oh no! The triangle. <laughs> so that's where they've been keeping all those stars. Surrounded by pointy things. Isn't that the same kind of pointy thing that protagonist was piloting? Oh, maybe maybe his his or her family has come for him or her. Their ferrofluid ship turned cool after they piloted it. It didn't keep being as spiky. Whatever. Yeah. Okay, I'm looking for the truck nuts. Where, which one had the truck nuts? Uh, I didn't see it this time. <laughs> maybe it was maybe it was a trick of the light. Oh, that's a shot. That's a shot from Ninja Gaiden for the NES. Oh yeah. Yeah the the nin- the angry ninja face. Oh wow. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like this must have like a ton of references that I I don't know. Well, also like I I bet like the artists from that game traced a, a manga or something to draw that, and then this mm. is a reference to that manga most likely. Now they're now they're fighting the Elon Musk uh, polygon truck, <laughs> cyber truck. All right, zoom. They do a lot of prop work here for uh, giving character to these characters without a whole lot of screen time. Yeah, it's interesting how like. Uh, they made the characters be pretty character-y. Yeah, yeah. That's always impressive when they when they manage to do that without any exposition. Oh no, they're worried. Protagonist is injured. It's a bad situation. That, like, presumably there's a, a mechanism in the ship to make sure all the injuries that happen to the ship also happen in, like, a, a analogous way to the pilot. Right, otherwise, like, the mecha wouldn't have a purpose, right? Right, yes. Yeah. There's otherwise. How does the pilot know that they're doing a bad job? Yeah, you got to give them the feedback. Yep, they've seen this pose before. This is like that one time when they were a kid. Protagonist is supposed to be crying, or like the thing where the their little twinkly, like twinkly water on the eye, but they're too cheap to animate the water, so it just looks weird. <laughs> like they, all they needed was two frames. They they actually had enough money to animate the water, but they were harkening back to the days when you couldn't animate <laughs> right. it. When they couldn't even afford a second w- a weld up tears frame. <laughs> Speaking of hearkening back to days, yeah, this uh, we got we got a little kid. This here. is a, a a chibi version of the protagonist chasing a oh how adorable a star. yeah. I wonder I wonder if this is a a, a mind control thing where like they they have um, put the protagonist in a simulation where they have, they have to pretend to be a child. <laughs> wow, it's the Matrix. Yeah. They have to be a child, pretend to be a child catching a star over and over again. I assume that this was some sort of like flashback or like their inner child giving them 
a pep talk or something, right? Right, right. Well, but then it's going to be revealed that it's actually a simulation and they need to escape. Well, here's the, where they escape, I guess. Yeah. Oh, they're out already. Okay. They just had to sit up from the chair. Yeah. It's not, it's not actually a very effective trap. <laughs> I want hair that does that. Yeah. You can do some interesting things with nitrile fire. I don't want eyes to do that. <laughs> That's fair. Can't relate, but okay. <laughs> Could hurt somebody or myself. Constantly singeing your own eyebrows. Ooh, yeah. And they're just going to ram the thing again. They're banging on the Epcot sphere. <laughs> Let us in. We have tickets. Is that even a place? Can you go into the sphere? I, th- I think they have like exhibits or something in there, right? Like It's the world of tomorrow, right? Is yeah. it? Is that inside of it? Okay. So that's where they've been hiding all the stars. They were inside the triangle the whole time. <laughs> Alternate universe self-collision. Oh, they invented mirrors. <laughs> Whoops. Accidentally fell into the parallel dimension. Where everything's black and white. They've invented stars, but not colors. Right. I'm trying to figure out this guy's archetype. Like, is, is he like an underwater dude? He looks kind of like uh, the, the walrus from Frog Fractions. Yeah, kind of. I'm loving this chroma throw that they're doing here with the red-blue. Yeah. Secret Service Ralph. He finally uh, he finally got promoted to pilot. Oh, <laughs> congrats, Ralph. But he kept his name Secret Service Ralph because that's it's just tradition. Of course. Time for big yell. Boom. Gay rights. <laughs> oh, that's no, all the truck nuts. They're flying through space. You're going to give everyone in the galaxy a truck nut. <laughs> just one, though. <laughs> they don't need two. No, no. If they want to, they can pair up and share. Yeah, that's how you find your soulmate. That's right. They have the matching truck nut. <sighs> and just one person in the galaxy gets truck lips. <laughs> oh god! And we're back to that first background. Yeah. I want to say this is a reference to the ending of Super Mario Galaxy, but definitely not. <laughs> yeah. What? When did Galaxy come out? When did this come out? Oh, it was two thousand seven, but. That story was so anime pastiche that uh, ah. it's got to be. Uh, it's weird to have anime pastiche with Mario looking characters because Mario looks more like more, more like a Hanna Barbera character. Yeah, he's not very anime. Yeah, that whole cast very American looking, animation looking, but um, placed in a very anime style story. The robot has so many arms. Yeah, good at hugs. It's to bring up the average. <laughs> Starlight Brigade was that an origin story? I think so. That's how the Starlight Brigade happened. And oh, that's not the end. There's there's more. There's a, there are credits. That's that's credits. great. There are credits, but it's a static title card. Uh, you so rarely see credits in the music video. I'm delighted by this. They don't seem to be crediting the music, just the the visuals. <laughs> You're right. I guess the music is in the title. So. Yeah, yeah. It's, they're they're credited in the YouTube video title, or maybe they just know that we haven't muted. More people that go into making the music than just twerp whoever they are. Right? Well, it depends what twerp refers to. Oh, here we got the music. Okay, okay, they've got it all. They've got the animation, they've got the the mastering. Commander Meowch. (laughs) For reference, twerp is a Tupperware remix party. It's a Canadian rock band from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Ah, thank you. Oh, cool. I like Tupperware remix remix party way better than just twerp. That's a good name. We did it. We watched the whole thing. YouTube is highly recommending the Genghis Khan Mike's, uh, Mike Snow music video, which probably someone should put on the list eventually. <laughs> that is a very entertaining video, yeah. In fact, I'm just going to add that right now. If you're going to do that, then you should add Pull My Trigger by Mike Snow as well. 
Uh, I'm gonna also link you another one that I just thought of. This one's Love the Way You Move. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. I'm into topics. Sure. Yeah, let's do that. Nova, your topic is challenges in scaling community organizing. Yeah. Um, I feel like multiple people here have had experience with this. So yeah, I figured that we have a lot to talk about here in terms of uh, every group kind of starts out as like one or a few people's idea. And it's a really difficult thing to maintain culture, maintain continuity and like do conflict resolution in large groups. Yeah. And I was wondering if other people had thoughts on this. I have some thoughts because I, I make this bot that's specifically for doing this kind of thing. Oh, interesting. I want to know about that. Uh, sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's called Fletcher, which is a, a reference, by the way, to Fletcher Wren from the Skullduggery Pleasant book series, who's the last teleporter. Huh. Because the first feature that I put into this bot was uh, teleporting between Discord channels on the Discord uh, chat platform. It's a very useful feature. Yeah, it was a good first feature, I think. It was something that caused it to have adoption. But at this point, it's got a lot of things for community organizing. It's got things like uh, one of the big things is trying to develop a like a machine learning powered profile of the server to try and figure out different people talk and with like different sentiment analysis and things like that, determining whether it's going to start a fight before the fight starts. Whoa. Holy, whoa. Yeah. Uh, it requires a lot of resources and uh, I'm thinking about ways to make it not do that, but it's definitely the most difficult part of the bot. How are you training it? Uh, it's continuously trained on a lot of AWS machines, mostly. But from what, what data? How does, it, how does it know what's a fight? On a lot of large servers, the ones where this is most useful, there are moderator uh -huh. actions, and I can correlate uh, information happening in moderator channels with conversations that I've segmented in other channels. Oh, wow. And if one thing happens and then the other thing happens, then I assume that correlation is causation, essentially, and uh, backs all from there, basically. Neat. Discord, at me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but it's, de it's definitely something that's been interesting. I, it's not open source right now. The open source model is, well, you can throw a sentiment analysis, you know, Vader open source model at it. And if the sentiment is below a certain value, then we'll alert you, that kind of thing. Uh, but that really only tells you about hostility and only if the hostile people aren't particularly good at what they're doing. I can definitely see that being a useful tool. Yeah, I think so. More useful in, in large groups, like I said, because it's got more training data there. Right. The hard part is determining what kind of privacy you want in terms of uh, cross-correlating models, because people show up on a lot of servers, um, and mm -hmm. oftentimes someone who's a troublemaker on one server will also be a troublemaker on other servers. And mm -hmm. I haven't worked out exactly how to incorporate that information, because I could absolutely do that correlation. But I get the feeling that using one server's private information for another server's gain is not a, an easy thing to pitch. So that's probably going to need to be an opt-in eventually. Yeah. I imagine people having like all sorts of feelings about like having their sentiments analyzed. Oh, I'm sure that they would. Yeah. I've definitely had people have opinions about just logging in general, which is interesting in online right. communities because there's a, a rule about DRM, which is that if something touches your screen, it's possible for it to be saved. It doesn't matter how many protections you have in the way. Um, someone right. can always take a picture of it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have a lot of faith that that's not going on, and that faith mm. is not really justified. Privacy in online spaces is interesting. Yeah. But yeah, this is sort of on a technological standpoint, um, um, things you can do to scale your community organizing and, and provide an asymmetric advantage to people who are attempting to 
keep culture in a particular way? No, moderating is like a very difficult job. I run a bunch of different Discord servers and like trying to it like balance like encouraging activity and inviting like right people who are going to contribute well and keeping the culture like positive. It's it can be really tough. Figuring out like what sorts of like mod interventions will lead to good outcomes is really tough. And it's really difficult to get uh, rules for this kind of thing. I, I think a lot of it really comes from lived experience. And I don't know of anyone who's written any really good moderating guides that are that go beyond kind of basic principles. I know that Discord come, has their moderator academy, but I'm honestly not that impressed with it. And uh-huh. I mean, back in the Usenet days, definitely mods had a you know, guides on their alt dot channels. Right. Yeah, all of my moderating experiences just from having done it, I would love to see documentation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it seems like there really ought to be a book if there's not a genre of books, honestly. It definitely seems like something where someone could do some good in the world by interviewing community moderators and community members of those communities they moderate to develop a grand unified theory of moderating. Right. Man, I wonder, like, what field that would fall under. Sociology? Yes. Anthropology? Something like that? Yeah. You could probably shoehorn it under a bunch of different social sciences, honestly. Mm. The one big social science can do it, I think. (laughs) But the big thing that I run into a lot is when you've got a small group and you want to scale it to a large group and you want to do it in a way that doesn't lose the culture. We talk a lot about eternal September, at least among internet (laughs) graybeards, I suppose. Right which was when AOL came online in September. Uh, do you remember the year by any chance? No, no. But the the September is important because... That's when college students would come online. Right. College students who are just getting into into school and getting their first internet connection would start in September. Right. Uh, and then they would smarten up over the next few months. They'd get the netiquette going. It's 1993 right. is when AOL came online. People talk about that as the September that never ended because the influx of everybody... Uh, overwhelmed the existing culture almost entirely. Oh, wow. Other than, you know, back rooms and, and on, on IRC and things like that. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a phenomenon that happens to a lot of communities when they get popular, is that there's a sudden, you know, kind of change. Because you also care about different things. Like a movement that is small and everybody knows each other can often talk about things with a lot of jargon. And they can talk about things uh, with the understanding that everybody's sort of on the same side. But when you're open to everybody, and your uh, 100-person server has become a 10,000-person server, oftentimes you're doing a lot of PR and a lot of movement 101 where you might otherwise have been having, you know, 301 conversations with the understanding that if somebody makes a mistake, you're not going to be shouted down by 100 people, each of whom are individually not having the experience of really harassing somebody. That's where the scaling factor comes in in a lot of ways. Uh, You can't just slow mode everybody and say, everybody has to post slowly. That only goes up to so many people. I'm on a Discord server for a, a, a Minecraft YouTube streamer, uh, Wilbur Soot, yeah. and his Discord has 30,000 members. Uh, the concept of anybody yeah. knowing who anybody else is, is weak at best, I think. Yeah, I've tried like dipping into some uh, Discord servers that are like that scale, and I just couldn't get a sense of the culture at all. I was like, I don't know how to interact here. Mm-hmm. That seems like an engineering problem. Like 30,000 people trying to have any sort of conversation, I feel like you would need to, like, first of all, what you do is you separate them into groups of 50, (laughs) and then each one appoints a communicator, and (laughs) that person watches the conversation that everybody else is having within the group, and then relays it to 
the outside world, the, the overall sentiment. That's how moderation works, right? Is that you've got uh, on a server, some, on a server, you often have channels and you've got moderators who are appointed for each channel. And they're the ones who talk together to the administrators uh, of the server who are then making a decision about the direction things are going. Right. So that hierarchical structure can work. Right. I guess, and I guess that's like how, you know, organizations like hierarchical organizations work in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's some question about like, that's one way you can scale. Are there other ways that you can scale that are sustainable? Can you build something that's less hierarchical? And, you know, traditionally, if you look at something like ham radio, uh, the way you do it is you have uh, federated ham radio clubs, or, or I guess confederated mm -hmm. ham, ra ham radio clubs that all sort of belong loosely to a, a global community, but oftentimes yeah. you're interacting with a smaller group, something that's lower than your, um, what's the number called again? The Dunbar's number. Dunbar's number of people. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and ham radio gets it for free because transmission range is limited. Like mm -hmm. you, you, if you, everybody could hear everybody else in the world talking, it would be chaos. Like the internet. Yeah. And I mean, that's something where we, if we, if you think about things like Twitter and Facebook compared to the forums of your, the discoverability is so much better on something like Twitter that your audience mm -hmm. is implicitly a global audience. Yeah. Twitter is like especially weird in that way. Oh, yeah, for sure. You're, you're writing your tweets for the context of your immediate followers. But if the outside world discovers them, suddenly they're reading it in a million different contexts. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very difficult to do communication for the commons. Um, I think people underestimate the job of politicians a lot of the time. Trying to appeal to every single person is, I mean, I would say it's a fool's errand, but it's certainly something that's quite difficult. Yeah. Your work that was made for a small group of people could be stumbled upon and broadcast to millions of people really puts a strain on, on what kind of things you can write. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking right now about like uh, a problem that I have run into in some of the Discord servers that I run where you have some people participating on the server who are like following all of the rules that you have, but they're like not fitting in with the norms and like they are making a lot of other people in the conversation annoyed and like uh like i have had cases where like people like will privately dm me saying like hey like because of the way that like so and so participates i'm probably just not going to be talking here as much and i've always kind of struggled on like what do i do in those cases because it's like like this person has not done anything worth banning them about or even like reprimanding them about but i would like to be able to say like hey the way that you're like trying to engage here isn't something that other people in this space are really gonna like take to. If somebody's a bad fit and they're rubbing other participants wrong, even if there's no rule, I, I do feel like it's it's it behooves you to get rid of that person. Right. I like have definitely run into cases where like one person was like talking a lot and ended up like causing a whole bunch of conversation to like migrate to other servers because people were like, I don't want to talk where that guy's talking because maybe he'll talk about my thing. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, well, I think I should probably get rid of this guy. But what do I tell him? <laughs> Sorry, people here didn't like you. Go somewhere else where they do. Bye. Yeah. yeah, I think that's something where the kind of self-sorting channel proliferation model helps a little bit. If you're thinking about things mm. in a, an archipelago exit right of feet kind of way, it can be useful to have ways of sorting somebody who doesn't get along with a lot of other people into another space. Mm. Yeah. Basically giving them an exit ramp that is graceful and is not a way that 
not not something that makes them feel like they are being excluded from a space as much as they are being given their own space. To be clear, what you're talking about is like everybody but that person just forms another discord and they just don't tell that person about it. No, I don't think so. It's something where you say, okay, this person obviously has some things to say. If at least some people are participating with them, you give them the option to have a channel that they're running, basically. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's that's much nicer. And that people can opt into that instead of opting out of that. Yeah, the the article, by mm-hmm. the way, that I was referring to a little while back was Hot Allostatic Load by Porpentine. Oh, yeah. I've heard that referenced many times. I recommend reading it. I think it's beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I read through a lot of it. I don't know if I ever finished yeah, send it. Send me a link to that. And I will read one or two sentences from it because I think it's worth it. Go for it. Okay. I am too sick to write this article. The act of writing about my injuries is like performing an interpretive dance after breaking nearly every bone in my body. When I sit down to edit the stock, my head starts aching like a capsule full of some corrosive fluid has dissolved and is leaking its contents. The last time I was in the new inquiry several years ago, I was interviewed. And that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. Was there more? No, no. We can stop there, I think. (laughs) I I was waiting for the pause. It really is time to call it. But thank you for sharing that. (laughs) It's some kind of ending, I suppose. (laughs) Thank you, Porpentine. Yeah. Uh, Porpentine is a hell of a writer. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Very good way with words. Evocative. Porpentine Charity Heartscape. Full legal name. Wow. Good name. Yeah. Elena, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I guess my my new matchmaking website is probably where to find me. Hell yeah. So that's propinquity.me. You can, okay, I'll put that in the show notes because no one's going to know how to spell that. Uh, propinquity is spelled exactly how it sounds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you know, Q-U were a thing that and it made sense to anyone. Uh, and Nova, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, sure. Yeah, you can find me at novalinium.com. That's N-O-V-A-L-I-N-I-U-M.com. And that links out to, I think, most of my projects or on Twitter at, at Dropella. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!